Today, I am joined by Dr. Eddie Waldrop, and I am really excited to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you. We spoke briefly in Denver uh, in, what was that, November? <laughs> Time is flying. So it was not that long ago, about a month ago. But I didn't really get a chance to really dig into your position and, and understand where you're coming from in this field and what your concerns are around therapy, gender, what's, what's this been like for you. And so I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you at length. And maybe you could start off by telling a little bit about your background and what brings you to the conversation. Yeah, yeah definitely. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure meeting you up in, up in uh, well, Golden, Denver kind of area for, uh, for GenSpec. Um, so for me, I'm, uh, I've been a clinical psychologist now since about um, 2015, probably when I, when I graduated. Um, before that, I was um, kind of born and raised in West Phoenix, so that's kind of where I kind of hail from. Um, did construction for a little while, and I joined the military. After I got out of the military, that was when I got interested in, um, basically, in PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was really interested in kind of trying to help people recover my, you know, fellow, you know, brothers and sisters in arms, you know, recover from PTSD. Um, so I got really lucky kind of going to school, met some great people, um, decided to go into clinical psychology. Um, did my studies initially where I first got out of the military here in Fort, uh, out of Fort Carson here in Colorado. I attended the University of Colorado here in Colorado Springs and then went off to Kent State for my PhD. Um, so most of my area of interest has been uh, mostly PTSD uh, for a lot of years. Um, and then um, what got me kind of interested in a little bit more of what's going on these days is just seeing a, a major shift that I think that's happened um, in our field uh, that's very you know, concerning. It seems like there's been a a huge ideological, you know, shift uh, going in ways that I, I think are, you know, uh, we'll probably talk more about, you know, the ideology kind of thing. Um, but I started to see it come out more and more. I think I was a little um, unaware of it happening because I've been so, you know, focused on PTSD for so long that uh, when I started seeing it in other areas, I was a little surprised by it. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a, a just a quick statement, just an official, you know, statement. Um, yeah, I work for uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs on the PTSD clinical team. But I just want to make clear that my, my statements here today are my own opinion, and they don't reflect any official positions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or any other yeah, institutions. You know, I also don't have any uh, financial interests or other conflicts of interest, anything like that. So I uh, just kind of get that uh, coming clearly and kind of out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, I've been uh, kind of you know speaking out a little bit about these things for a little while now. Um, and I've not a, I haven't had a whole lot of positive reception. Um, yeah, and so very similar to yours, I started uh, you know, seeing you know, some of your experience. Um, it's very similar, I think, hmm. uh, what's been kind of going on. Um, I've been trying to advocate for things like viewpoint diversity, uh, how that relates to therapy. Uh, I think I was really lucky coming through at a time before the ideology set in. So a lot of the Kind of the old guard, I think, of psychology. Uh, people like Jack Graham, people like that from the uh, MNPI kind of lab, were kind of like mentors and, and educators. And so I think I'd be kind of very rooted in trying to think about things very scientifically. Um, and so when the ideological shift kind of came in, that was a huge concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. It's it's interesting. You you refer to it as an ideological shift, and that's my perception of it as well. And and yet it's interesting when you go back and you, you talk to people who've been perceiving this coming for a long time, they can point to, to different 
uh, I guess, different points along the timeline when they're saying, no, this has been here for a long time. These kind of thoughts have been creeping in. But I did really feel like we took a leap. There was a shift. And yeah. I feel like it happened sometime between 2010 and 2020. But mm -hmm. what what was your perspective on that? When do you feel like you started to really notice something was different? And when what was the process like? Did it start as was there a creep or was it just suddenly you were aware that there were concepts that had become untouchable or rigid? Yeah, yeah. And no, I think creep is a good work. Um, I've been reading some recent work by uh, uh, Dr. Haslam. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. I think he's out of Australia. Uh, we talked about concept creep, uh, but a little bit more in the field of trauma. Mm -hmm. I think it has been going on for a long time. Like I said, I think it was just out of my awareness uh, mm -hmm. because I've been so specific in, in PTSD for a long time. I mean, that's where I spent most of my you know, my research and reading and literature reviews, all that kind of mm -hmm. you know, stuff for a long time. And as I started kind of looking into this more, uh, I did see there's a, a longer record of it. I think it was uh, kind of an insidious onset might be a way to think about it. And it's kind of, it was there and it's creeping around in different areas. And then I think in 2020 is when it really kind of blew up. Um, and when I started reading more about these, I see where it started to seem like it set in around 2010, according to like Jonathan Haidt and mm -hmm. Luke enough people have been talking about this for a little while and um i think the first time i saw it really is when i was doing my postdoc in hawaii mm -hmm. so i did my postdoc you know out there and um we it's the first time i was introduced to microaggressions mm. okay what year would that have been uh, right around 2016 okay okay somewhere like that mm -hmm. um i think it's 2017 Some, somewhere right in that range we had a journal club, you know, we all you know, read and discuss an you know, article. Mm -hmm. And it was an article about microaggressions. I think it was a Sue article. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, Daryl Wing Sue. Yeah. Or David and, Sue. Uh, and when I when I first read it, uh, I was like, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, there's issues that kind of came out the the, you know, it was kind of glaring at me, which I think is a, a testament, I think, to the training I had at Kent State, mm -hmm. where I thought a lot about kind of um, making sure that because in the field of psychology, yeah, you know, we don't have standard things we can we can measure. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of things are psychological constructs. So we have to be very careful about how to ensure that we're not saying something exists just because we say it exists, mm -hmm. you know, or what they call like reification fallacy. Right. So now uh, we were trained to be very kind of careful about those things. And mm -hmm. so when I read it, I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have base validity because the way it's you know defined. Um, and a lot of the other kind of problems that came along with it. And then um uh, it was a couple months later when my colleagues kind of reached out and said, hey, here's this article that said all the things that you're saying, basically, um, by Scott Lilliefield. It was like 2017, that's why. Mm -hmm. And I guess it had just come out. Of course, he did it much more thoroughly, much more in depth, you know. But mm -hmm. um, And so I just kind of dismissed it. I was like, oh, that's good. I mean, microaggressions, they exist. I know they, they do. You know, I'm, uh, I happen to be interracially married. Um, have been since 2004. You know, mm -hmm. my daughter just turned 16. I mean, mm -hmm. we've seen, you know, some of these kinds of things in our own experience. Mm -hmm. um, but the way it was defined mm -hmm. and, you know, the the way it was kind of laid out, that's that's where like the the construct validity had problems in terms of the science mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of concept. So I was like, oh, that's fine. People are going to, you know, sure address this. People are talking about it now mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, be you know, interesting. Um, but then I didn't think much more about it until about 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, after George Floyd and COVID kind of set in and sparked mm -hmm. war conversation mm -hmm. um and i mentioned something where i was like yeah this concept of microaggressions it still has some issues with you know 
-hmm. basically since you can't have unintentional uh, aggression mm -hmm. right it's, mm -hmm. it's logically inconsistent you know? you know i think you're something that you're highlighting is is i think it's really important it's this the that there's a foundation here of of substance there are issues there are what were they i think i take exception with the word microaggression also because i think it's it's um you can't have it's like you said you can't have something that's aggressive and unintentional that because the word aggression it contains within its definition intention right. so so there's a problem with that concept but there's there are ways that people have experienced uh you know cl uh, i guess systemic or whatever you want to call it I, I i'm stumbling over words right now because there's so many words that have become loaded with the critical theory but right. people there are racial differences mm -hmm. and there are differences in the way that you experience life due to the way that you're perceived based on group identity or you know the, so there there's a real substantial foundation but this critical theory the way that it comes in and tries to solve for that feels really wrong and have you been able to work to articulate exactly what's wrong with that yeah but um i'm not sure i'll get i'm um, doing with that but i'm trying to to articulate that in some way because i think what it i think what it does is um it's almost like a um a anti-social kind of framework right it's almost mm -hmm. it's almost like a psychopathy in some sense um because what it does is it manipulates people's um desire to kind of be good right so People don't want people to be discriminated against. People don't mm -hmm. want people to be kind of harmed. Uh, uh, people want others to be treated fairly and have you know, opportunities to flourish. And so what it does, it takes that kernel of truth that there are these things that do exist. Mm -hmm. It kind of manipulates that to turn it into um, its own uh, kind of radical uh, kind of theory. Mm -hmm. And yet it, it kind of boils things down to just that, uh, uh, that kind of Marxist orientation of everything's uh, oppressed or oppressed. So it's like mm -hmm. a false primary. You know, it leaves mm -hmm. out new you know leaves out kind of anything other than than power dynamics and it, i think that's the way it kind of gets its way in it, it kind of it appeals to something very natural to people i think people mm -hmm. are generally um generally good mm -hmm. you know? and that's something that appeals in that way it's and almost the, like a like a distortion of compassion into mm -hmm. indignation it's like it we're going to take your compassion and we're going to turn it into anger yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's one of the things where I think about it in terms of um, that's what I mean by the that kind of psychopathy kind of thing, right? Because mm -hmm. um, it's one of the things that you don't do is um, if someone does have you know, psychopathic tendencies, or for example, you don't mm -hmm. teach them about things like empathy because they would take those things and use it to manipulate to cause more harm, mm -hmm. and that's what this kind of ideology seems to do. Mm -hmm. It seems to take that, um, and then by the time people realize that the gone down that hole um they might have gone so far that now it's hard to kind of work your way back out of it hmm. um and that's what i've been trying to figure out now it's kind of uh, how to have a good operant for people you know because hmm. i think good people have been sucked into the ideology they're not the ideologues those people do exist mm -hmm. once you really want to transform society in radical ways kind of thing and, mm -hmm. and kind of ignore the history of, of this ideology and how bad it is uh, but i think most people are generally good people mm -hmm. and, um, and unfortunately, it might start to ruin relationships or friendships, and mm -hmm. that can start to create its own cognitive dissonance of like, I can't be the bad person. Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. yeah. I'm yeah. trying to care about others. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I like the idea of an off ramp and uh, and offering 
a way to reintegrate really, because this is such a black and white ideology. And one of the things that's really been concerning to me is that it causes a, there's, there's a backlash that's caused by it. When you are hearing over and over, for instance, that white people are bad and you're a white person, you can end up being defensive and angry and kind of seeing the, seeing other, uh, racial groups as the problem and it it just foments this kind of angry cyclical response that increases division among those who are ideologically possessed with the social justice indoctrination and among those who are responding and reacting to that so it seems like it's just roiling up this social tension yeah yeah definitely and that's where I've been trying to think about how to how to engage in the conversation with people in ways that um it tries to minimize that because I think that the more that's that's what they want. I mean, if you read mm-hmm. uh, um, you know the philosophy a whole lot, you kind of really get into the weeds of it. They really do uh, think a bloody revolution is kind of necessary to bring about this utopian change. Mm-hmm. And we see it fails time and time again. Um, but the more that that happens, the more that people um, you know, the ideology itself is is focused on bitterness and cynicism. You know? mm-hmm. That's how it creates kind of division and 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 uh, fosters that kind of the rivalry between the the two groups, whatever they are, and mm-hmm, intersectionality mm-hmm. just kind of goes between any other iteration. So it just finds ways to sneak it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to think about how to be able to engage in ways where people don't fall susceptible to that, because mm-hmm. the more people on the right or the left get pulled into that, because it tends to be the way it's it's kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people start to feel like they have to be defensive, that just fuels the ideology. That's what they're wanting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking that the way to, to hopefully overcome it is to try to focus on like, you know, things like universal humanity. Mm-hmm. You know? If we say, well, you know, we might have some disagreements, but we both agree that we want things to be better for people as we move forward. Mm-hmm. And that might be a way to kind of hopefully stave off, you know, some of the bitterness, uh, bitterness and, mm-hmm. and division that comes, because I see the more that that happens, it seems like, like, like the radical, um, um, ideologies winning and I have mm. concerns about it. Yeah, it seems to me like there's a, that the process itself is con- is contagious. There's a social contagion in that process in that, in, in when you said it's based on bitterness and cynicism or it, it encourages those, maybe that's the thing that bitterness and cynicism when directed at another tend to, uh, tend to encourage that in response. And mm-hmm. so, uh, it's not so much that the content is contagious, it's the process. Yeah, exactly. And so people might get dug more in, on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. That just fuels the ideology. That's mm-hmm. what it's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm a, of course, I'm a uh, you know, combat vet, stuff like that. So I'm a, a, a big uh, patriot for America. And I think that there are some of those American values that I think actually can help overcome. But mm-hmm. They've been uh, the the ideologues have been working to try to undermine those kind of values for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know things like kind of uh, individual liberty, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. You know things like that, because mm-hmm. those are individual focused. And so they've been trying to undermine, I think, those for a long time. And unfortunately, I think they've been more successful than I would like. Um, mm-hmm. And I think kind of a lot of people unsuspecting. You know, myself being one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said that you started to see this creep into the PTSD field, even. Mm-hmm. 
And how did that, how did it manifest there? Was it just a focus on victimhood or what was the, what was that like? Yeah, some of the, some of the victimhood um, and some of it's from our, our general conversations. So a lot of it started to come in really from the, uh, um, the race-based uh, traumas mm. where I more of it. Um, mm. I started learning more about the ideology after the uh, last election um, when people started talking about critical race theory, you know, mm -hmm. quite a bit. Uh, that's why I first started to kind of learn more about it because I had, I've been, uh, I've had, I've been pretty, I guess, skeptical of media for a long time anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the best things from my undergrad class I had where we uh, kind of challenged those kind of things. So I heard uh, some media talking about critical race theory one way and some media talking about critical race theory another mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not buying what I'm hearing. So I just went into the source materials. Mm -hmm. and, kind of mm -hmm. um, and then I started seeing it come into uh, the field of PTSD where they're starting to say that microaggressions are, mm -hmm. are considered uh, to be uh, trauma in some way, mm -hmm. which is um, because, you know, trauma is a, a very defined event, mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. something like sexual assault, severe motor vehicle accidents, mm -hmm. combat, you know, things like that. Um, and so there's no cumulative effect. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no no such thing as you had a whole bunch of things that are very stressful, and those all add up to being you know trauma. Um, so it didn't seem to fit, but people weren't uh, seeming to challenge that very much. Like mm -hmm. it was like people were just kind of going along for the ride with it. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And there's been a uh, the concept of CPTSD has really become more prevalent. And so this idea that a bunch of an accumulation of smaller like sub trauma events that are that are really difficult for a person can can sort of create uh, the same kind of complex in a person yeah yeah and that's been kind of going on for for a while there's different ways that they came out because that existed for a long time so there's people um i think chris bruin if i'm wrong don't don't maybe for chris um or uh, others have been talking about Try to remove criterion A uh, from PTSD. So you can go back into the literature and see people having those discussions for a long time. Um, but it was, it was less about kind of accumulation of kind of things and more about just looking at kind of symptom presentation. Okay. Um, how those things looked. Mm -hmm. And so then that shift started being like, like you're kind of describing where it seemed to be like more of an accumulation kind of thing. And for mm -hmm. me, that started to reinforce uh, more of a, a victimhood mentality. Mm -hmm. um, uh, looking for ways to kind of, you know, catch yourself as um, being victimized in some way, uh, mm -hmm. no matter how slight, mm -hmm. uh, and or for a reason to have a diagnosis, almost seeking as it, which is very opposite to the way I've been, you know, trained. I'm I'm a big uh, advocate for Albert Bandura's uh, social cognitive theory, because mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot about self-efficacy and how that relates to PTSD and recovery. I did like my dissertation looking at resiliency. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I kind of approach things is, yeah, we're not a we're not a result of our experiences. We have our experiences, but yeah, we're mm -hmm. the ones that be able to define how we recover and how we move forward. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it seemed like there's a shift, yeah, in that you know trying to almost inculcate mm -hmm. you know, mentality. And I, I've had concerns about that. I first started seeing it kind of along the lines of um, uh, along race, but you see it in other ways too, uh, different forms of microaggressions. Um, uh, not using proper pronouns, and mm -hmm. we see the effects of this. I mean, I'm sure that you've seen the videos of mm -hmm. young people that have been, I think, kind of brought into this ideology, and they have complete meltdowns if someone uses the wrong pronoun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's just the, the opposite of the way I think about uh, how we flourish as people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm much more resiliency kind of, you know, oriented, I think, mm -hmm. than than what the ideology wants. 
And is there a way to bring that resilience focus into the larger cultural conversation? And how how do you do that? Yeah, well, I, I think um, I just saw there's a there's great researcher named George Bonanno. He does a lot of resilience research. I just saw another video of him. So I think there's a, uh, I think there's enough of a literature base out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think trying to bring it back in, I'm not sure how to do that. You know, I've, mm -hmm. um, I've tried to raise criticisms and concerns about the ideology. Um, and I'm trying to think about the most effective way. I, I don't have the answer, you know, to try to, to renew that sense. You know, if we look at people and in terms of like the racial arena um, and social justice along the traditional ways that we think about those things, um, civil rights. Um, and you see people like Booker T. Washington. Um, uh, I see people like you know, Martin Luther King and others um, who really strove to be able to move forward and say, you know, regardless of those things, mm -hmm. you know, we have the power within us, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to flourish. Um, we don't, we're not dependent on other people mm -hmm. to give us, just kind of, just get out of our way and we can move forward. Mm -hmm. own, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, some of those voices I've been uh, very concerned that I don't see them elevated. Uh, mm -hmm. There's another great um, individual, Robert Woodson, uh, who's mm -hmm. been a vocal uh, civil rights uh, leader. Um, um, but it's like, if you don't buy into the ideology, and if you, it doesn't matter if you're white, if you're you know, black or gay or straight or anything else, if you don't buy into the ideology, you get castigated and set aside as some kind of bigot. Mm -hmm. you know? Like Dave Chappelle be called a white supremacist, you know. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. It's just a way to attack anyone who doesn't total line to the ideology. Um, I'm hoping that some of the recent events might be a good uh, gateway. Um mm -hmm. because uh in in Congress are um, you know the presidents, I think of UPenn, uh Harvard, mm -hmm. they came mm -hmm. under a lot of scrutiny um uh, for uh, basically failing to condemn, I guess, uh, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And some of the behaviors, and I think that's one of those things that hopefully is going to shock the conscience of more people, hmm. yeah, you know, who aren't in academia, who mm -hmm. don't see, you know, how much this is kind of taken over. So hopefully that's going to be something that people say, yeah, I think that's, you know, I think there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah, maybe I don't want to send my kids to college. Maybe I, mm -hmm. you know, concerned about what's happening in their schools now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's I it with. A person who's being encouraged to take a uh, to take accountability and take responsibility for the direction of their life, there's a fine line between helping to build resiliency and making someone feel like their actual suffering is being dismissed. And so mm -hmm. it seems like some of those voices you're talking about have been treated as if they are dismissing the concerns of of people who are really upset about things that they feel are have hurt them deeply and so how I, I know it's a delicate tightrope to walk encouraging someone to to build resiliency versus you know dismissing their concerns and so how do you walk that tightrope in a cultural conversation or with an individual for that matter how would how would you kind of walk through that what's that process like work helping a person build resiliency yeah yeah well i think that's that's a great question um and I think about it in different ways, in different contexts, uh, of course. It's, it looks different in therapy than it does in more of a general uh, open kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, um, in a therapeutic context, a lot of times we take a look at, um, for example, in cognitive processing therapy or other cognitive behavioral therapies, we recognize that sometimes the way we perceive things influences both our emotions and our behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
And sometimes our, our the way we perceive things can be influenced by our experiences in the past, particularly trauma in the case of you know, the work that I do mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we do is try to examine those things very closely. Uh, so what, what exactly has the influence been? What's this look like? What does this show up in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I, uh, you know, how does the evidence bear on that? Mm-hmm. Move that forward. Um, and that's usually where we're kind of looking at in terms like of therapy of how to, to you know, develop a sense of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times looking at people's own experiences, a lot of times people are much more resilient than they give themselves credit for. Mm-hmm. You know? So sometimes just helping people kind of recognize that that, that evidence within themselves, mm-hmm. you know, kind of empowering that, that process. Um, and more of a the more general broad kind of conversation. Um, uh, there's people that have been doing that work and and I'm still wondering about how to do it, you know, uh, help improve that. Uh, but I recognize that there's false narratives out there. Mm. Right? So the idea that uh, because you're you're a black male that you're going to be um, you know killed by police, right? Mm. For example, right? There's there's great work of people like uh, Wilfred Riley, um, uh, people like this who've been working in this area for quite a while. Um, highlighting the actual data and the statistics. Um, I've been working on a little bit of those things myself, you know, looking at that data. Um, even the idea that, um, that you know, the race-based trauma is, is a thing that, you know, comes to you if you're, if you're a minority. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they don't like to use the word minority anymore. They want to use other things. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I see those things as more ideological driven, right? But mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're Black, for example, the idea is that living in a world that's kind of full of white supremacy, that you're under constant threat and things like this. But if you actually go and look at the data and the evidence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Bureau of Justice Statistics and things like that, they actually do a pretty good job with those things. And they also do something called the National Crime Survey. Uh, I think that's what it's called, where they take a look at those things and say, okay, well, this is what the numbers say here, but what do people actually say who've actually experienced crimes mm-hmm. and stuff like that? You know, because they're they just kind of grabbing, you know, people that are not white, throw them in prison for whatever reason. Mm, mm-hmm. And they kind of take a look at those things and they actually match up pretty well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of the good data that's out there. Um, but the idea is that people are afraid to talk about those things, you know, because if you try to to look at, at facts and figures that don't fit the narrative, they're going to label you as as a bigot or some mm-hmm. kind of, you know, mm-hmm. And be treated like a pariah and we've seen that happen plenty of times no that's not just <laughs> you know it's not an unrealistic concern for people to have mm-hmm. um but people that are, have been helping i think for me to um be more confident talking about it uh one is because i kind of see how bad that this can go if you look mm-hmm. at the history of socialism or communism in other countries it's terrible what happens and we know that it's facts we have pictures and videos and and mm-hmm. Um, but people like John, uh, John McWhorter and Glenn mm-hmm. Lowry, you know, mm-hmm. they have a, a conversations quite a bit and mm-hmm. they kind of, one of the episodes I'd seen, they said, yeah, people are going to call you a racist, you know, but you just have to mm-hmm. know that it's not true and continue mm-hmm. to speak out about what you think is important. Mm-hmm. And that really kind of resonated with me. So mm-hmm. then I thought about the times that if I don't speak up, it would almost feel like there's some cowardice, mm-hmm. within, you know, and, uh, that didn't. That doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I'm a combat vet. So I'm like, yeah, I've had worse than people say bad things about me in the past. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's really an important thing to stress, you know, that, that you're not allowing reputational threats that you know are not based on truth to keep you from saying what you think is is true. And, and it's 
gosh, we've seen so many people, so many professionals. I was just speaking with Elliot Kamenetsky um, mm -hmm. last week. I put up a video with him this week and he was talking about the, the silence of people in his field, in, in your field, in this, in the field of psychology, who mm -hmm. of, of any trained professionals, you would think would see this coming a mile away and know what they're looking at and, and be able to label these processes that we're watching unfold socially and individually and be able to say, this is not right. And here's what's happening. And yet there's been, there's the silence is deafening and you've seen the schools be taken over by this. I was being taught by people who were, were preaching this stuff out of one side of their mouth while talking about, you know, more classical psychological principles out of the other. And they were not bothering to try to bridge the gap and explain the inconsistencies in the stuff that they were teaching and so it's it's really it's really amazing the the way that people have chosen to self-censor around issues that they're and when you say cowardice is it is it self-doubt is it because they wonder if maybe this is true or is it just fear that if they don't go along they're going to lose their license or, or what do you think that is based on yeah, yeah, I think um, I think there's a good mix of those those things there. And uh, yeah, I met Elliot at uh, at Genspec, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, fantastic guy. So I really appreciated meeting him. Um, um, but yeah, there's been um, people that do have those real fears about it. So for example, with the uh, uh, gender affirming care, there's concerns for that people had that if I if I don't affirm someone's gender uh, identity, that I'll lose my license. Mm -hmm. And that was contrary to the way that I was trained. So I was lucky, I guess, I came through. I learned at Genspec that. I've probably been trained in some of the earlier uh, models um, mm -hmm. of it before the, I guess, recent, the change eight, you know, that, that mm -hmm. kind of came out. Um, so I was trained, I guess, more classically along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. And so then if people had a fear, of, um, I know I, for me, I, I wasn't working with a lot of people who were um, dealing with gender dysphoria, you know, during that time frame. but I was considering myself kind of lucky. I was like, wow, I'm not sure what I would do mm -hmm. because we, we know that the evidence didn't support it and it never mm -hmm. has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I point people to is go look at you know DSM three, mm -hmm. DSM four, DSM four, you know texture vision, DSM five. There's no evidence to say that you know people that uh, have gender dysphoria are inherently uh, you know transgender. Mm -hmm. Most people, you know, they they tend to grow out of it, mm -hmm. um, so to speak, over time, or you know desist, mm -hmm. uh, turn out just to be you know mostly you know gay mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that you know uh, but we know that these things you know it, it's not there wasn't a lot of mystery but people just weren't speaking up mm -hmm. and then I, I think that was kind of related to harm that we've seen in kids mm -hmm. where people you know, put on life-altering hormones and, um, and things like this and so I, for some people I think having the fear of losing their license and their livelihood that's very real mm -hmm. um, and uh, for me I've been I've been kind of vocal Mm -hmm. um and so be, as a result of it and much like i think yourself um when people know that you that you speak up they'll reach out to you and mm -hmm. say hey i appreciate hearing you say something i've been thinking the same thing i'm afraid to say it you know out in public um i've had many of those you know, conversations with people and um, i wouldn't want to dismiss that uh, or say that that's cowardice because um that's you know, we have to be able to provide for our families, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. live our lives, you know, things like that. Um, um, so I think for, for some people, uh, that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Real concern because it has happened to people, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, yourself being a good example of what happens when you kind of speak up and, <laughs> and the impact yeah. that can have, right? Yeah. Um, and um, for some people, they're just not sure if they're kind of, maybe they haven't gotten enough into the details of it, mm -hmm. right? So some people might just not feel like, like, hey, I don't have enough expertise in that. So I'm not going to kind of put myself out there in a way that's going to, you know, potentially put me in jeopardy, but I'm not sure enough about it. Mm -hmm. I'm more focused on providing care here or there. And I have no concerns with those things as well. Uh, uh, for me, it felt like it just because I, I knew that there's a, something else that I'm pretty confident about. And if I wasn't speaking up, you know, that's where it started to kind of creep in with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and for like my military background, I'm a, I'm a, I was an infantry um, squad leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in combat. So a lot of time in the infantry and um yeah, the mindset is kind of a little bit more of a warrior mindset. So I think that's why that kind of creeped up with me. It's like, uh, I just can't let that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like um, it's, that part of you was stronger than the part of you that was worried about consequences. Yeah, yeah. And I've had plenty of the consequences. Um, yeah. I've had plenty of those as well. Um yeah, but also my wife, she's been very supportive. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, she's active duty military. Um, mm. so we've talked about these kinds of things and, uh, and, uh, she, she thinks that, uh, you know, basically my heart is in the right place. Mm -hmm. I'm doing my due diligence when, when I, um, criticize things, I've, I've researched it and I've read through these things. So I'm, I'm not, you know, talking out of my, mm -hmm. yeah. having yeah. a supportive partner that you can talk about these things with, and that can help mm -hmm. you to clarify your thoughts. I'm sure that's been wonderful. Oh yeah. Yeah. She doesn't like to hear a lot about it. Cause she's like, yeah. Like, yeah, it's crazy, but <laughs> that's not where I want to spend my time. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, knowing that I'm thinking that I'm doing the right thing, yeah, yeah that really helps out a lot. That's yeah. good. You know, yeah. something you've mentioned is the the sense that you kind of got your training before a lot of this really set in, and I've been wondering a lot about that. That's been a, a huge part of my life the last couple of years is being dismayed and uh and and just and really frustrated with the state of education and mm. the state of counselor education for one thing this is you know where i've been personally but just the sense that we went off the rails teaching professionals and when i think about the the people that i was going to school with and the way that they seem to uh in enjoy embrace and kind of elevate and amplify this stuff through their through their own engagement with the the theories the the ideological stuff a lot of the times the strongest proponents of the crt model or the gender models would have been the students who were putting this out in their writings and then the teacher would be using that as a model to to then uh, applaud that kind of thinking. So this was this was coming from the teachers, but it's also coming from the students. And you saw these these emerging professionals who were so excited to go out and be activists. And you think about what a difference that mm -hmm. frame is. It just and you know I I hadn't trained to be a counselor prior to that, but I'd been in counseling and I I did a undergraduate in psychology back in the late two thousands, and so. I'd been around it enough to, to say, this is not right. This is not the way therapists are supposed to think. We're not supposed to be charged up with activist ideology in order to be social change agents and use our clients as the, as the vehicle to change society. That seems 
antithetical to what therapists are supposed to be doing. And so we have this period of time right now where this is how professionals are being trained. And what does that mean? It just seems like it's sort of a, 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 I don't know, a spike in the timeline. If you think about psychological professionals, here we have this like giant glaring clump of what is this? This is, we've taken it. Do we go somewhere else? Do we have to retreat from this and create an alternative profession? Or is there a way to plow forward and, and sort of rehabilitate what's happening? <laughs> I, yeah. I just, this is a huge question to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. There's people that, that say that it's just lost and that mm -hmm. it's, it's too far gone to be able to recover from. Mm -hmm. um, I think that might be true, but I also think that it's happened so relatively soon that, it, that there's still some ways to kind of, yeah, obviously, because, you know, being a psychologist or working in the field of mental health, I believe people can change. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be in this field generally. Yeah. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for us to be able to kind of recover those things. Um, um, How I do think... you recover the reputation of, of a field? Well, I think you do that with integrity, okay. right? And I think that's the first uh, thing because when people see that you're, and people get a sense that you're being coy, if you're not mm -hmm. being honest, you're not being straightforward, right? If you're not being genuine, mm -hmm. they're not going to listen to you, mm -hmm. right? So I think as a field, I think the first thing has to happen is take accountability and say, yeah, we think that there are some things that kind of crept in um, that were probably well-intentioned, but we're kind of uh, missing the mark in important ways. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're kind of taking some corrective actions as a field uh, to recover those things and we can see where those things kind of come in there's uh, different multicultural models that kind of come up over time and you can see the change when it went from kind of multicultural uh, considerations of how people's different experiences can influence who they are as individuals and we might take account of those things uh, to uh, shift to making multicultural assumptions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we can we can kind of point to those things in the record be able to say okay here's where we think we started to miss the mark mm -hmm. um, so i think now, that's the way for the field to recover mm -hmm. um, is trying to be open, um, uh, being humble, because that's some of the things we try to encourage in our clinical work. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us to have any credibility, I think that would be important. Um, there are people trying to make some changes, um, like the Society for the Open Inquiry and Behavioral Sciences, uh, mm -hmm. and others are doing great work. Um, um, I'm not sure about how we recover the, enough of these things. We start pointing out where the ideology is and say, okay, here's where intersectionality it comes into play. Um, here's what we think is a benefit of that. And here's where we think across the line. That's how we walk it back. Mm -hmm. I think if we do those things. There's an opportunity to recover it. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I think the market, the free market will do it over time because this has happened in the past mm -hmm. um, with um, our, uh, feminist um, you know, mm -hmm. theory. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole branch of uh, psychotherapy that's rooted in feminism back, I think, in the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of Marxist, you know, basically, I think, you know, orientation and the problems of patriarchy and, and mm -hmm. uh, like that. And so people go in for therapy and like, you know what your problem is, is, you know, the patriarchy and you should get a sign and go protest. And like, hey, I think I just have test anxiety. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I actually, I think I just want to have a better relationship with my, my friends or my, my mm -hmm. you know, civic mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. And so people start to stop going, you know, to that kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing will happen with our field. If, if it doesn't recover, people don't want to go and be told that you're bad because you're white or that you're a victim because you're, you know, you're born X, Y, or Z or because of your sexual orientation. 
Yeah, I think people naturally want to find a way to flourish. I think people get tired of being told that they're a victim. Mm -hmm. But that'll take longer, I think, for that to, to have a bigger effect. Well, and I, I think that with all these these different movements, it seems like there's an attempt to define some kind of moral norms and and pin therapy to that. And so there, that does seem like it's a problem for the field. If we aren't based on something, then what are you helping people to find? And, and, and so in terms of like sexual norms, we've got right now this older, I guess an older generation of thinkers, like I would put a, us in that category who would say, um, it is okay to be gay and lesbian and we support your right to, you know, X, Y, Z with sexuality and find your partner. But then we balk at some of the newer ways that people are thinking about sexuality in terms of, of gender and transgenderism and the trans child, et cetera. So how do you put, how do you define that? Where do you put a pin in what norms are socially healthy and what, what you support and what you, what you work from when you're working with clients? Yeah, I know. Um, it's another great question. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think uh, the, the, the way I try to think about those things, uh, I come from uh, the old-fashioned biopsychosocial kind of model, right? Mm -hmm. So acknowledging there are things like biological reality, we have social influences and how our psychology, those things interact. Um, and so some things that we kind of know, so for example, the the, the thing that really kind of led to uh, us being to where we're at with, um, you know, gay rights, you know, mm -hmm. for example, was recognizing that people are kind of born that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and And we kind of know this now. And we can see those things, you know, coming from kind of biological kind of origins and things like that. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and, but I think where the, the, the line comes in is when, I guess recently I've been thinking about in terms of elitist thought, mm -hmm. right? When someone says, well, no, that's not good enough for us because we decided that it should be a different way, mm -hmm. right? So they're trying to superimpose uh, their thoughts, how things are supposed to be on top of reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we try to make that distinction um, as best we can. Yeah, because that's part of the uh, the Marxist kind of ideology in the first place is that, you know, social, you know, um, um, social man. Basically, mm -hmm. if you change enough of the kind of uh, society, uh, then men will change as a result of it. You know, men mean, you know, humans. Mm -hmm. um, of course, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, we're, you know, we've, we're evolved, you know, species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not, at the end of the day, we still have all the same biology that we had 100, 200,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so changing our words on top of something is not going to change our underlying biology. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't just mean that in terms of gender. I just mean, mm -hmm. you know, how our systems function and everything else. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we can't say that we'll have a better lung system and our lung systems all of a sudden start to change mm -hmm. talk differently. And I think that's where we try to you know, harken back to kind of reality. I saw there's a great uh, short clip recently by Stephen Hicks. He's a... a uh, philosopher and he talked about the uh, the question between um, reality and, and and if there's a such thing as uh, uh, like a genuine truth I'm probably butchering it mm -hmm. but one of the ways he kind of described it was that basically that truth is a relational concept uh, between kind of how things exist in reality and the way we think about those things and how well they correspond is what 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 um, objective truth is and the more we try to impose our ideas on top of the real world 
I think there's glaring kind of problems and we see that every time they've tried it. Um, so I, I think the best way for us to do that is be compassionate with people, recognizing you know where they're at and what they're dealing with, um, but then recognizing where that someone's trying to have some outside idea that's trying to be superimposed on reality. In other contexts, we consider delusional, mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, you know, um, there's one king of England. If I, if I said I'm the king of England, I try to superimpose that reality, it's not going to change it, you know, um, but somehow it gets into this kind of ideology and you're not supposed to question it. And that's where I have a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, and, and with transgenderism, it's easy to, or gender ideology, it's easy to draw a bright line there. But what about some of the other ways that, and I don't know if this is something that you've really spent a lot of time with, but some of the other things that I found to be strange about the way I was taught when I was in graduate school were around human sexuality in general. So there's kind of a no holds barred, everything, the the way that the field is going is like, don't kink shame, everything is okay. Every, you know, we can be, the, the polyamory is just as good as, um, as, uh, uh, you know, a monogamy. And so there's this real backlash against what the they're calling cis heteronormativity. Hmm. And right. this was coming from my textbook that I was being taught in my, in my graduate applied psychology course that, that we shouldn't hmm. be cis heteronormative. You, you want to be supportive of all this range of human expressive behavior when it comes to sexuality and you as, as a therapist, there's no way to help steer somebody into, I don't know, contemplating what might be healthy for them or, or how, and how do you, what's your backdrop anymore? If we're not, we're not a Christian culture per se anymore, we're not a religious culture. So does something else come in to take the place of religion and, and how do we establish what, how to help people find a healthy balance for themselves with regard to sexuality in today's climate? Yeah, I, well, I think, um, you know, first we, again, I'll, I'll try to, you know, take it back to kind of more evolutionary kind of origins. Mm -hmm. You know, we take a look at kind of human behavior and how people kind of evolved, you know, having kind of uh, generally committed relationships is the way we've um, probably existed before there were things like religion, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So again, we take it two, 300 years, uh, 300,000 years ago, um, having pair bonds um, is probably what drove, you know, our species. We see this in a lot of you know, other species as well, right? So mm -hmm. it's not saying that humans are somehow unique. That's where I think some of the ideology tries to kind of come in. You know, mm -hmm. they almost say, that, you know, humans are separate from the rest of the, the animal kingdom and we're we're uniquely able to generate social kind of norms that redefine our world around us. Uh, sorry, my family just got back. So if you hear them in the background, they got the door closed. But um, um, so, so when I think about what's kind of, um, you know, natural in terms of kind of sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. All of us are here because, you know, uh, sperm and egg met, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's the only way you get new people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so to say that that's what's been most common throughout history is just self-evident, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and now, there's also, we see in nature too, we also see um, homosexuality. And we also see, um, you know, maybe bisexuality might be a way to think about it. Right, but animals who are you know mate with female mm -hmm. as well as males with their male or things like this. Um, so we can uh, say that those things exist in nature, and mm -hmm. there's no reason to think that humans be different than that. Mm -hmm. 
so that's where we, we see kind of the, the lesbian, gay, you know, bisexual. I think that's where a lot of those superimposed um, uh, being from religion or other kind of things saying that well, you can't do those things because it goes against our ideas or our beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't match up with reality. And I think that's why reality won out over time. Uh, but the same thing happens with uh, some of the kink kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with what consenting adults do mm -hmm. in their own time, right? That's the thing, you know, that we don't shame, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, people are free to do what you want. That's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a life, liberty, you know, pursuit of happiness, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the, the key there being the consenting adults and not trying to impose those things on others, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where the, I think the the idea that you know psychologists are supposed to be activists now and start to say, well, no, if you if you think about things just in terms of heterosexual, you know, or cis heteronormative, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, these things are so they're almost funny um, after a while, yeah. right? But um, if you think about the things that it's natural to be kind of males and females together, um, that's somehow wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not wrong. It's just I think you know, natural, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that you have to therefore kind of shame people who have, you know, different kink or things that they like mm -hmm. or that they're, um, mm -hmm. right. Um, but you don't have to try to impose either one on others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's when you start to impose whatever side you're coming from on others is where you start to take away from the individual liberties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not sure about how to change the textbooks. And luckily I wasn't going through, like, I, I, I never saw a textbook that said cis, norm, cis heteronormative yeah yeah you know? <laughs> so like i said i came through before those things had changed i'm not sure what i've been like in school if that had come across because i'd be like Ew. <laughs> yeah it was really strange it was very strange um strange atmosphere to be educated in and it was online so it was even more i felt a little disconnected from it and i just felt like i was puzzling over in my corner wondering about all these positive responses to this and not sure how to in how to even enter in a a questioning view it was uh it's really strange right well a lot of the younger people um are, are the ones who really gonna get sucked into these things quite a mm -hmm. bit um but we've seen that with like uh china's um uh, you know cultural revolution right mm -hmm. the red guard you know people like that mm -hmm. um maybe there's you know some ways because their brains aren't fully developed until around age 25 um, and so maybe kind of having something they can latch on to, like, oh, this is the way we're going to change the world. It's going to mm -hmm. be great, right? We're going to make things better for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's not enough of that skepticism that's kind of creeping in. And, well, yeah, it does seem like this offers young people uh, a lot of things that they really need, and it gives them uh, inclusion, a quest, something to strive for, something, you know, it's just, it's it's kind of all there. So I can see how it'd be really appealing to have mm -hmm. uh, one of these, I guess uh, it, the social justice field is anything from an environmental climate, uh, LGBT, BLM, all these different things give somebody a sense of anchoring into something larger than themselves and, and, and that transcendent belonging, which mm -hmm. is really tempting. I can see why it's so alluring. Oh yeah. It's a, and we see those things, those things are just natural for young people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, skateboard culture, you know, culture, <laughs> to, you know, uh, back in my day, kind of get earrings and kind of punk rock, yeah. and stuff, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's natural for young people to have something that they get excited about, they get kind of fueled with. Um, and that's where the, um, this ideology has really kind of crept in. And I think it's been going on for quite a while, you mm -hmm. know, 
I can't remember who it was, but I watched a, a discussion by um, an individual who talked about basically uh, this has been going on through our education departments for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a lot of think older people uh, like myself. Um, uh, someday you'll get there. <laughs> 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 uh, but um, uh, who uh, we were taught, I think, more old fashioned ways, right? How to be independent thinkers, mm -hmm. um, right? Uh, you're challenged a lot. Um, yeah, teachers didn't coddle us, right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, keep it simple, stupid was one of those things that we were told a lot, you know, as kids. Mm -hmm. And probably get you thrown out of school if a teacher said that to a student these days. Mm -hmm. um, but they've been basically working their way through. So a lot of the radicals in the 60s, now they never really left the universities. Mm -hmm. And so they they went through their school and they got their PhDs and stuff like that and went into these different fields, uh, such as the field of education. And then They've been branching out apparently into different uh, areas to start teaching the younger teachers, mm -hmm. and I think that's how this has kind of come up. Where when I was going to school in the, the you know eighties and nineties, there was probably some few small people in different areas, but as this started to creep more through the departments of education and started to come more to the teachers, um, that's how our young people I think started to be the ones that are driving this. So it used mm -hmm. to be I guess like faculty members. Who would say, "Oh, this is terrible. We got to change the system, right?" And mm -hmm. um, all those things. And then all of a sudden, it's shifted to where now people are saying it's the kids that are doing it more, kind of mm -hmm. like you're mm -hmm. describing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it's kind of been percolating up, you know, through K through 12, mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, social emotional learning. They call it now, um, um, mm -hmm. you know, blogging, you know, inclusivity, yeah, you know, stuff like this, which are things that we we want, but I think we want the traditional meanings of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like you said about shifting language, and now you've mm -hmm. got you're using words to kind of disguise the meaning of things. Yeah, exactly, it's very Orwellian. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like you read Orwell, it kind of comes right up. Actually, actually, we got a you know someone to you know, try to to hit me up on that of kind of pointing out the similarity between this and Orwell. Mm. Silly kind of times that we live in, but you know, so my daughter, of course, um, she's coming up through these things, so we talk about these things. I try to incult, you know, I could try to inoculate her so to speak mm -hmm. against the ideology and you said she's a, is she a teenager yeah teenager yeah. are you thinking of sending her to college um yeah yes and no um uh, because i have concerns about the colleges and mm -hmm. i don't want to i don't want to pay you know eighty thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars for people to try to brainwash her because I, I don't have a lot of confidence that, the, that you actually get an education these days yeah right? yeah um you know you can learn about Marxism and you know these kinds of things. It took me about ten minutes to figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first kind of came across these, like, oh, it's critical theory. It comes from mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, the school of Frankfurt. Like, okay, well, I know what this is now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it doesn't take that. It's not very sophisticated, and and that's why they tell you you're not supposed to question those things. Yeah, because you you, it falls apart stuff. quickly, unravels. Yeah you, yeah, you start to see right through it, mm -hmm. um, and so. Um, and there's some areas of, of professional life moving forward where you might have the have the credentials to move mm -hmm. in different fields. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm kind of worrying, wondering about if it's worthwhile to go to college or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she's thinking about maybe going to uh, one of the uh, military schools or something like that. So maybe wouldn't be as bad there as it might be at other places. But I mean, I never thought I would, you know, uh, fathom there'd be a day when I'm like, I don't want my kid to go to Harvard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. don't I want know. my kid to, you know. Um, yeah. I never thought that would ever, ever exist in my mind. I never thought I would, I would ever consider like, well, 
you know, maybe a conservative school would be better. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I consider myself necessarily conservative, more like classical liberal, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking like there, they might not be trying to indoctrinate her. Right, right. I, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd be thinking that framework. Yeah, it is a really difficult time right now. And this for the same reason that we were talking about with the the psychology profession having mm-hmm. this there's this blip in the timeline it's like this for colleges too we still want our kids and we still want ourselves to gain the credentials that we need in order to work in the fields that we've been imagining ourselves going into but now what are we facing when we enter one of these programs we are right. many times facing I, I i don't think that it's easy to get either you're going to be indoctrinated into this or you're going to struggle through your cognitive dissonance and have and either way it's psychologically harmful to go through one of these um, critical training programs yeah definitely definitely because there's a there's also the opportunity uh, cost as well so Mm -hmm. even if you can't go through these things and you're like oh i'm not buying into the mindset yeah i'm challenging these things i'm going to stick with my principles i'm going to have the courage to stand up and, and tell the professors like no Mm-hmm. I'll wipe more, not bad. And, yeah. You know, these kinds of things. But that also means it comes at the expense of what you could have been spending that time doing otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, you could have spent that time kind of, you know, looking at different uh, philosophers. You know, what were their agreements? What were their mm-hmm. disagreements? How'd they come across? What are your thoughts about it? Right. Mm-hmm. How are you challenging these things yourself? Um, where Where is your, your, uh, skeptical analysis. I hate to use critical now because critical right. is, it so, means something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but how are you developing your own sense of healthy skepticism? Right. Mm-hmm. How do you how are you trying to ensure um, that it's not fueling your own ego that you think that you're so smart because you came, you know, you're agreeing with something. Like um, mm-hmm. how do you knock yourself off your own high horse? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are the things that are missing, you know. And and that's where I'm not sure if I want to spend all that money because I want to be able to have the credentials. It's going to be her own choice, of course, when, when she wants to mm-hmm, do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot of money to spend. Yeah. Uh, to come out, I had $190,000 in student loans when I got done, all, you know, all said and done. And um, I would hate to be paying that to be brainwashed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And because I think some of our younger um, therapists, to be effective, I think they're going to have to unlearn what they were oh talking. gosh so much and yeah. i you know speaking of the money when you brought that up it reminded me of i at one point my worst class in graduate school was this multicultural perspectives course that i've, I've talked quite a bit about it it was like a dei course and mm-hmm. it really stood out as being different than my other counselor training materials mm-hmm. that i was being taught because it was so sophomoric in some ways and and so just it 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 very starkly was this CRT kind of teaching. Right. And I spent the semester kind of writing back and forth to the professor in these long what she called journals and we had to we had to kind of write our process with the with the material. And um it it was a lot of me trying to delicately challenge this stuff because I didn't want to I wanted to be open to what I was learning and I wanted to process it as intellectually as I could. And so we're reading Daryl Wing Sue, for instance, and I'm trying to challenge some of the things that he's saying while still giving credit to some of the foundations that are underneath of it. And she would just write back that basically it was my white privilege that was making me interpret things this way or that. And at one point I said, I feel like 
I, I calculated how much I had spent on this course and it was something like, I don't know, $2,600 for this one course, you know, it's, it's crazy mm -hmm. expensive. And, yeah. um, and I said something about that. And she said, uh, the fact that you can look at a course like this so transactionally is, is a mark of your societal privilege or something like that. And I'm like, right. no, it's a mark of the fact that I'm not working right now so that I can take this course. And my mm -hmm. family is taking a massive hit. Uh -huh. right. so that I can pay for this class and I want it to actually be something of value. So it's, it's really, yeah, that you, you are, I mean, there's a lot of cost, like you said, opportunity costs, there's what you're not doing. Right. And, and there's finances. And those things are so contrary to what we actually do in terms of, of psychology. Right. So, I mean, that's, you're basically describing the, the cognitive distortion of oversimplification, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Everything in the world can be oversimplified to your white privilege or whatever, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, yeah. and this is something that we work with our clients, you mm -hmm. know, in, in therapy to recognize because that's a pathological way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the same thing with a, a training we had gone through where um, one of our postdocs was doing a presentation on microaggressions and they used an example of uh, there's a white couple and a black man gets on the elevator and then the white woman gets closer to the her, her husband, right? Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to be cued to say, well, this is some kind of microaggression, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's mind reading. Yeah. You don't you don't know what this person was thinking. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's another pathological, like you can you can open up any um uh, cognitive behavioral therapy textbook. You can Google cognitive distortions and you'll mm -hmm. see both of those. You'll probably mm -hmm. see oversimplifying and mind reading or jumping to conclusions these are mm -hmm. pathological ways of thinking mm -hmm. and and this is being inculcated by our our educators mm -hmm. you know it's, it's like what are you what are we what are we doing here and how that, am i wrong yeah that reminds me of uh what this is one of the few examples that stood out to me even back when i was in undergrad so i did my undergrad i graduated in 2008 Mm -hmm. from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. And okay. it was a pretty good program, the mm -hmm. clinical psychology program there. And um, there was one uh, one example in a textbook that talked about unconscious bias and racism. Mm -hmm. And they showed two pictures that were used in a study to to assess unconscious bias. And they they were uh, they were claiming that the results showed bias against blacks. But mm -hmm. they were two young men and they and the white kid, the white man is dressed pretty nicely and he's standing upright. Uh, I think maybe he had his hands in his pockets, but he's just standing with an open body posture. Uh -huh. And then they had a black kid, the same age, and he's wearing like a, like sport, like a sports outfit, maybe like a hoodie or something, but he's crouched down in kind of next to a car tire with his body turned away and you can't see one of his hands and it's it's night. And I thought there are so many different variables in these two photos. You, this is not a fair thing to right. present people with. I, you got one guy who's hiding his body and the other guy who's presenting himself and different, everything about them. They're so different. And I thought, how is that okay to use these as examples? You could really swap the races and you'd probably get the same response from people feeling more suspicion yeah. from the one guy than the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's an excellent observation. That's one of the things that's kind of uh, been influenced in so many of these things. I, I'd seen similar kind of things. Um, and because um, I graduated also my undergrad in 2008. So that's when I got okay. undergrad back, back then. And um, and since then, there's been so much more of the research on implicit bias. I mean, now we could you know, pretty fairly say that 
you know, there's no evidence that supports implicit bias. Yeah. Right? It's kind mm -hmm. of, um, in more lay terms, it's probably junk science at this yeah. point. Right. Uh, and there's a whole host of different things. There's a uh, Lee Jessam has a great psychology today article. It has like a whole archive. Mm -hmm. So people go through and read all the articles that they want to along those lines. Um, but um, there's a, a article, I think also actually by Jessam, uh, I think it's published in 2020, uh, Ideological Bias and Social Science, I think it was. Hmm. And they highlight, I think, I think it was that article, where those kind of uh, inflammatory or big um, uh, results, they'll get a whole lot of citations that get put into textbooks. And then later on, research will actually come along and say, actually, you know, if you kind of run mm -hmm. this a different way, you actually get a different result or these other factors that were, weren't taken into account. And those get hardly any citations and, and, and they don't make it into the other textbooks. Mm -hmm. So they have things that are actually refuted and refuted very well. Mm -hmm. um, all people will see would be the one that, that was sensational, mm -hmm. you know, textbooks and things like that. And that kind of mm -hmm. skews, you know, the perspective over time. So the damage uh, is done. Even yeah, exactly. if they, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Even there's a, the one too, um, about uh uh was a stereotype threat mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so like oh yeah there's a stereotype threat if you're you know if you're a minority or if you're a woman um uh you're not good, as good as math or whatever kind of stuff mm -hmm. and it's a stereotype threat that accounted for for these differences uh but what actually had happened it was just a statistical thing hmm. so they basically it was a, a analysis of covariance right so for the for the stats nerds out there uh, i used to teach stats and stuff like that but um, uh, basically, if you control for prior variance, then there's no variance in the outcome. That's mm -hmm. what a analysis of covariance is. Mm -hmm. And that's all that it was. It was the use of ANCOVA so that the uh, the differences were observed initially mm -hmm. were not observed in the outcome mm -hmm. because it was controlled for. That's just the way the statistics work. Mm -hmm. And so people had this a whole lot of time talking about stereotype threat when it never existed. Mm -hmm. uh, in the, the, even the initial analyses was just they had misquoted their own uh, results mm -hmm. um, uh, no, or misquoted or it wasn't explained thoroughly enough about mm -hmm. how that's a result of using that type of analysis, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but people don't hear about those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're not going to find that in the textbooks. I mean, it's just, it's uh, really unfortunate. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm so, I'm, I'm mindful of the time, but also so tempted to just launch into a bunch of questions about behavioral sciences and how, uh, how, the, how this field sort of makes up so much and, and tries so hard to bolster its own credibility and, and doesn't mm -hmm. admit, doesn't, I, I feel like there's a lack of humility within wow. the, the social sciences, because there's so much variation, there's so much we don't know, and, and that individuality is uh you can't you can't parse it in terms of intersectionality it's mm -hmm. uh, you know i just i i'm tempted to just pick your brain about that <laughs> but i should probably yeah. if you have any thoughts i'd love to hear well yeah well and i know we want to be mindful of time but yeah i've been thinking about that recently as well because there's been a long time that our that our field has um uh mm -hmm. dealt with the insecurity of not being a real science yes. right that's, that's, yeah you know, yeah kind of thing right and mm -hmm. and a lot of doctors and you know physical scientists like ah oh, whatever psychology kind of thing right um and so I, i've been uh really remiss that more of our students haven't read paul neal i'm not sure if you've ever read it no what's paul neal paul -E neal how do you spell it yeah m-e-e-h-l -E um -E so it, it's like famous for a lot like neil and Krombach is uh people that kind of uh 
yeah, back in the 50s. I think it's Mill and Crawl back 1955 is okay. uh, uh, one of the things that people use for how to look at construct validity, for example. Um, he has a great article, I think it was like 1976, but some of the things he pointed out was the, the problem that, you know, in our field of psychology, since we don't have those solid things we can measure, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like in physics, they have like, this is one meter and it's like a metal bar mm -hmm. that's one meter and you can go compare against those kinds of things. And so really kind of digging into those things about how well we can actually you know, develop our fields in ways that we're mindful of the limitations we have. And I think as a way to, to be, uh, have humility and try to do the precision as best we can, knowing that we have limitations. And it seems like that has just been lost on uh, mm -hmm. what I've been seeing in the field in the last mm -hmm. few years. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that people will be able to kind of re, re, retrace our origins, where we kind of came from in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, like, yeah, it's true. We don't have as much solid footing as, as you know, physical sciences, right? If, if mm -hmm. an engineer wants to send a rocket to space, right? They have to do all the calculations and they send it to space and see what happens. They, they can measure mm -hmm. the results that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we can. And um, and it seems like it's it's been unfortunate that one of the biggest impacts that our field has had has been to push this pernicious ideology onto others. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, there's yeah. probably there's probably an old Greek myth that probably uh, yeah describes this process well, but it's just it's unfortunate because it's like like now's our chance. Now we can be worth something. Now we can actually have an impact. Yeah. What are you doing with it? You're you're creating bitterness and cynicism and trying to tear down our society. You know. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think you described it really well as an insecurity around not being, um, not being a real science. And I guess something that occurs to me is that at the end of the day, if, if it is to be a real science, that's going to turn everybody into ones and zeros, and you're going to have this perfect technocratic understanding of people that breaks us down as if we are robots in some, to some extent. I mean, and do we, is that even a desirable thing or is there, some way to separate from the the separate what is scienceable, what is knowable in some kind of testable and reproducible way from a an appreciation of the spiritual nature of of humans, that there's something ethereal that we can't understand in that way that that can't be measured. And is that a desirable thing? and and maybe we don't have to be a science. Yeah, yeah, I think there's ways to kind of have have uh, kind of both of those things. I think I think having a decent amount of humility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's things that we can kind of understand about these things, but obviously we have the replication crisis, which I think is is a good thing for our field to be able to correct some of the hubris that has kind of gone on. I'm uh, sorry, what the the which crisis? I missed that uh, word. Oh, the repl the replication crisis. Replication crisis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Basically, when they try to replicate these studies and they didn't turn out, like, yeah. oh, this is something we know in psychology, and they try to reproduce the experiment. And it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that was good for us in terms of being able to kind of correct where people were overstepping where the science can actually take us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the ability to kind of have awe and inspiration and mm -hmm. you know, the pursuit of beauty and, and love, those are also aspects of human behavior. And so that, that might be something we can't kind of, you know, drill our way down to the zeros and the ones. Mm -hmm. But we can we can appreciate that and try to understand it as best we can, even if we can't go completely reductionist. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, are you optimistic about where we are, or or what what do you think? What what gives you optimism, if any? Yeah, well, what gives me optimism is uh, uh, the human capacity to change, right? And I think we've had 
great things to look back on our history. I mean, we've gone through, um, you know, you know, slavery, oppression. We've gone through wars, famines, um, mm -hmm. you know, throughout human history. And we, we tend to think, think about this last little snapshot of 500 years and represents all of humanity. And it's just not true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think through those things, kind of, um, you know, truth and, and compassion for others has gotten us um, to where we are today. And I think we still have that capacity. Um, and I think people are trying to undermine it. And I don't think it's going to work out well. I think there's only so long that looking at, like, for example, Chow's or uh, Mao's uh, China, mm -hmm. you know, they went through Mao Zedong and had the Cultural Re Revolution, right? So they imposed a communist ideology, this, this, you know, false binary. They kind of impose all these kind of things, but people, were miserable people you know i think i, th I think i've seen this but it's up to 60 million people might have died i mean that's mm -hmm. absolutely atrocious um and over time they said it didn't work well so they opened them back up to more of uh individual liberty and kind of free market um kind of environment and it started to boom back and it started to flourish mm -hmm. and now xi ping is over there and he's starting to take it back to some more stricter you know communist kind of um, um ideology and i think it's going to start to shrink again mm -hmm. so i think over time people will say like you know this is just a failed ideology you can impose this on people mm -hmm. you can get people to buy into it but it turns out terribly every time and so my optimism is hoping that truth will win and i'm hopeful that we do it before it goes too far here in america because i don't want i don't want my daughter or your kids or other people in society to go the way it's gone every time that they tried this somewhere else yeah so that, that's that's my my optimism is hoping the truth wins <laughs> well i love that it's been a really great conversation eddie i've really enjoyed speaking with you thanks for ranging all over the place with me in this <laughs> conversation um yeah. where can people find you online if they want to follow you and your work yeah well um i am on uh on x now uh formerly twitter so um i went on there finally um um, I have a, a, a sub stack I haven't started writing yet, but I have like the name for it. Um, yeah, Salty Grunt Doc. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but I haven't started writing a whole lot there yet. Yeah, mainly because there's been some of the things going through work. I make sure I have a, um, the Office of Governmental Compliance kind of mm -hmm. thing. Make sure I'm doing things you know properly, yeah. things yeah. along those lines. Um, but hopefully in the future, I'll have a website and I might have a book maybe getting started, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, or along the lines of race-based trauma and stress. Um, but um, well, I hope you do work on that. It's your, I think your ideas are a great contribution. And what is your uh, X handle? If anybody's just listening. Uh, Dr. Eddie Waldrop. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Great. Um, I'm hoping to uh, maybe, um, I'm thinking about starting an LLC this, um, you know, this next year after mm -hmm. we get through the holidays. Because mm -hmm. I've been thinking about actually of, um, I'm trying to offer some kind of consultation service. So mm -hmm. I think in the future, if we do recover, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, mental health professionals um, that are going to have to kind of unlearn, like we talked about, mm -hmm. the radical ideology and how to go back to like just considering unconditional positive regard. How do I yeah. actually work the person across from me mm -hmm. and away without having this kind of mindset of, of looking at them through these different lenses and this... Um, uh intersectional framework that most people are getting taught these days mm -hmm. um so i'm thinking about trying to start those things up so i might have a website to come and when i do i'll put that on the twitter handle thing 
Excellent. Well, if you want to send me any links, I can include those in the description. So I'll have your, uh, your Substack and, and any other links that you want to offer. And thank you again. It's been really great talking with you. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you much. All right.